You're listening to a Toronto Centre podcast. Welcome. The goal of TC Podcasts is to spread the knowledge and accumulated experience of global leaders, experts, and world-renowned specialists in financial supervision and regulation. In each episode, we'll delve into some of today's most pressing issues as it relates to financial supervision and regulation. The financial crisis, climate change, financial inclusion, fintech, and much more. Enjoy this episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our TC podcast. I'm Ilana Singer, former chair of the Toronto Centre Securities Advisory Board. The Financial Services Regulatory Authority of Ontario, or FISRA for short, is an independent regulatory agency created to improve consumer and pension plan beneficiary protections in Ontario. Since its launch in 2019, FISRA strives to serve the public through dynamic and principles-based regulation that is responsive to changes in the sectors that it regulates. By way of scope in regulation, let me share some numbers with you. As of December 31, 2020, FISRA regulated 298 insurance companies, almost 7,000 pension plans, 64 credit unions and Caisse Populaire, 50 loan and trust corporations, almost 3,000 mortgage brokers, over 5,000 accident benefit service providers. To learn more about the FISRA principles-based approach to regulation and some of its recent announcements to changes in oversight, I am thrilled to be joined today by Antoinette Lung, the Head of Financial Institutions and Mortgage Brokerage Conduct Market Conduct at the Financial Services Regulatory Authority of Ontario. Welcome, Antoinette. I am so happy to be speaking with you today. Thank you, Elena, for having me. Thanks, Antoinette, for that very helpful context. So let me begin with my first question. Can you describe your experience in applying a principles-based approach in your role at FISRA? Thank you for doing all that research on FISRA. Um, I'm going to add to it a little bit just to set the context. Um, as Elena said, we regulate a large number of businesses and individuals span a number of sectors. And in fact, um, as of now, we are regulating seven sectors within the financial services industry. And in the future, we are also going to be adding one more, uh, which is financial advisor and financial planner. And as part of this, there are 10 legislative statutes that we are administering. So as you can see that uh, the scope of our regulation is very, very broad. Even though we are primarily a conduct regulator, uh, we also have prudential responsibilities. Um, and because of that, and uh, because of the nature of the businesses and individuals we regulate, from our perspective, a one-size-fits-all approach just is very challenging. And then sometimes it's almost impossible. Um, so, Elena, to answer your question, maybe what I will first start by saying is, what do we mean by principles-based regulation? And from my perspective, the key characteristic of this approach is very clear articulation of the objectives and the outcomes that we want to achieve through regulation, rather than simply setting out the specific requirements that we would like our regulated firms to meet. And here's an example of what I meant. Uh, it has to do with disclosure. So from a principle-based perspective, 
what we may say in our regulation is we want to make sure that you are providing appropriate disclosure to investors so that they can make an informed investment decision. Now, in contrast, if we're going to take a prescriptive approach, we will likely say you must disclose the following risks about the investment to your investor. And then we would list out the specific risks like liquidity risk, interest rate risk, et cetera, et cetera. What would you say then is the real benefit of using a principles-based regulatory approach? What principle-based regulation really allows us to do is to be more proportional when we regulate different players. And what this means is we can adjust the extent and the focus of our supervision um, based on the regulated firm's business, their size, and even complexity of their operation. It also allows um, our regulated firms to innovate and evolve the business processes as the market and the consumer need change. So how do we apply principles-based re regulation? I always like to think about principles-based and prescriptive approaches as two ends of a spectrum. You can obviously pick one end and go with it, or you can move along and do a combination of the approaches. From my perspective, whichever way approach you take, the most important thing, and, and to me it's actually very critical, is really defining precisely what is that regulatory problem you want to solve. And understanding how the problem can impact an outcome um, will really help you design how you regulate can you give me an example of this? A good example, because we're conduct regulator. It is very easy for us to say, we want to regulate because we want to prevent bad conduct or misconduct. But what does it actually mean? Is it about putting a home buyer into a mortgage with a related private lender with unfavorable mortgage terms? when that home buyer actually qualifies for a mortgage with a big five bank? Or is it about misrepresenting the mortgage terms to a do-it-yourself home buyer? So, so as you can see, both of these are issues. They both impact a consumer, the home buyer, but the impact to them are very different. And our expectation as regulators should be different. So if we're not precise enough, we will not be able to go into that level of specificity uh, to really help somebody set out um, you know, their process or controls to address that particular problem. So when I talked about principles-based and prescriptive-based uh, being a continuum, from my experience, where you move along the continuum really depends on the sector that you regulate. And there are four things that I'd like to always think about. One is, are the regulated firms homogeneous or are they quite different within the sector? Secondly, is the industry quite static or is it going through a lot of changes? And third is um, also important is what are the industry's compliance experience? Are they mature or are they, you know, a lot of startups that don't really have uh, the right experience? And lastly, we obviously cannot forget the consumers. So who are the consumers we're trying to protect? Are they sophisticated or are they not sophisticated? 
How would this apply in a real world situation? Can you give us a walkthrough of how this might work? So here are some specific examples that I thought I will mention before we continue the, the dialogue is one of the sector that I regulate is the mortgage brokering sector. Elena has already talked about a number of uh, firms that are within the sector. Uh, in particular, there are over 200 mortgage administrators in this sector that we regulate. A few of them are very sophisticated. They have very mature business processes, very mature compliance structure, but we also have a number of smaller firms. And recognizing that not everyone have that same level of resources, we, when we put out guidance last May uh, to set out our expectations on our mortgage administrators should be acting during the COVID market disruption, we're more specific and we set out uh, more detailed requirements. Now, relative to the mortgage sector, the credit union sector, on the other hand, is generally more sophisticated. We're currently working on some guidance on how credit unions should be addressing market conduct. We will be taking a more principles-based approach with more emphasis on the outcome we intend to achieve, as well as the types of misconduct that we think a credit union should be thinking about when they are you know, putting in place the structure to address market conduct. So lastly, the regulatory approach we take, um, as I said, do not need to be static. Um, it can evolve as the market and our understanding of the market evolves. For example, um, when FISRA and the predecessor FISCO were first regulating the sales of syndicated mortgages by mortgage broker, we were very, very prescriptive about the type of disclosures uh, that mortgage broker needs to give to investors, as well as very prescriptive on the type of suitability assessment that they need to conduct by requiring them to use prescribed forms. As we gain more understanding of the nature of the investors who are buying these products, we notice that there are a lot of them are quite sophisticated. So we actually removed some of the more prescriptive and specific requirements, and we just limit it to you need to provide adequate disclosure and we you need to do a suitability assessment. Antoinette, thanks very much for that detailed response and also for providing context about all of the various areas that FISRA is now responsible for. Turning to our next question, can you provide us with some insights that you've gained from this experience that regulators should consider when they are implementing principles-based regulation? Absolutely. Earlier, I talked about two things that are important when considering how you move along the continuum of principles-based regulation, uh, which is think about the regulated industry and the consumers that the regulation is intended to protect. The other things that are equally important from my perspective are the internal capabilities of the regulator, especially with respect to how knowledgeable you are about the industry and your internal resources, both from a human and technical perspective. As I said, because implementing principles-based approach depends on the nature of the industry, so it is important to understand it, in particular, how it is evolving and the drivers of the changes. There are different ways we can do this, and it can be formal and it can be informal. For example, at FISRA, we have established a number of technical advisory committees for different regulated sectors. 
These are forums that allow industry stakeholders and FISRA to share and exchange information. And we also use these committees to socialize policy we're considering, as well as seeking feedback on potential impact, including even brainstorming ideas on how to solve a problem. The less formal process could simply be reaching out to industry participants and trade associations on a regular basis. One observation that I have is that historically regulators focus a lot on the firms and individuals we regulate, with much less emphasis on interacting with the consumers who are beneficiaries of our regulation. And in recent years, regulators are more mindful about this. For example, we have seen a few regulators establishing either consumer's office or investor's office, doing research on the profile of the consumers, even segmenting the consumers. And at FISRA, we're definitely interested in making that connection with consumers, those who we're protecting. And we have established our consumer's office in 2020. And another consideration I talked about is our internal capabilities within the regulator. Tell me about what that would look like on the ground. So the first internal capabilities that we want to think about is your staff experience. Because principle-based regulation requires judgment, um, at FISRA, we really aim to bring staff with different backgrounds and skill sets. For example, we have staff who have experience working within the sector. We have staff who are accountants or lawyers by training. In this way, we can put them in teams so that they can benefit from each other's experience. Also, we want to make sure that more junior staff can work with more senior staff so that they can get the knowledge and the coaching uh, from each other. The second thing is internal capabilities from a technical perspective. Like what are the technology you have? What are the internal processes you have? For example, do you have the means to collect and analyze data to help you understand the industry? But I want to emphasize that although it is important to have data, it doesn't mean that you need a large volume of data. It certainly doesn't mean that you need this most state-of-the-art analytical uh, programs before you can you know, do this. What we need to do is to be really, really thoughtful about what aspects of the industry you want to understand and then target your data that way and start small and you can scale it going forward. Antoinette, that was a very helpful response and will be a great guide for many of our regulators and supervisors who are listening in to this podcast. Now you mentioned during your opening remarks and in response to the first question, the mortgage brokerage sector. And so the next question that I have relates to the oversight of syndicated mortgages. And in particular, two fairly recent events. And those are that FISRA inherited the responsibility for regulatory oversight of that area of syndicated mortgages from FISCO, which you mentioned earlier, in June 2019. The second event was that FISRA and the Ontario Securities Commission, also known as the OSC for short, subsequently announced that the regulatory oversight would move to the OSC in July of this year, of 2021. So I have a two-part question here. I'll start with the first question. In transferring this regulatory oversight of the syndicated mortgage market to the OSC, can you describe how FISRA 
has been working together with the OSC and other entities such as the Ministry of Finance to facilitate a smooth transition of these responsibilities. Absolutely, Elena. So for the benefit of the listeners, maybe I can give a little bit of background about this change. Uh, as Elena said, FISRA is responsible for regulating the sales of syndicated mortgages in Ontario. And because these products are more akin to securities investments, the government decided that the OSC is the more appropriate regulator because it already has the structure and the frameworks to regulate investments. Given the potential impact to the current industry participants and to minimize the change and reduce burden, only sales of certain types of syndicated mortgages, and we call them non-qualified syndicated mortgages, um, when they're being sold to retail investors would be transferred over to the OSC. So what it means is that after July this year, the OSC will regulate the sales of non-qualified syndicated mortgages to retail investors, and FISRA will continue to regulate the sales to non-retail investors. As Elena mentioned, you know, Ontario MOF is very involved in this because they are actually responsible for amending our legislation uh, to allow for the transfer. Because there will be two regulators regulating the same activity and the same product, the risks are regulatory gaps, duplications, and potentially unlevel playing fields for industry players. So there are two key things that we worked very closely with the OSC and MOF in order to develop the new regime and to address the risks that I've talked about. One is agreeing on the foundational principles when we develop the regime. And secondly, is to allow an established way for us to regularly communicate as we designed and go towards implementation. The key principles that we followed are one, how responsibilities are being divided between the OSC and FISRA, specifically who is regulating home and what. This has to be very, very clear to the industry to remove any uncertainty. So some of the things that we did together was to try to use same definition, same definition for syndicated mortgage, same definition for non-retail investors. The second principle that we follow is that our approaches must be consistent, as consistent as we can, and at least not contradict each other to address the unlevel playing field issue. In terms of regular communication, we have set up working groups to give us a forum to discuss the design and the implementation of the new regimes. We all attended industry roundtables together so that we can engage in the same dialogues. And lastly, our respective proposals to affect the transfer were published together uh, for public consultation. We also coordinated our responses to the public comments, which allow the industry to see the whole picture and not just part of it. It also allow us to propose solutions that work well together. It sounds, Antoinette, like you have a clear path forward in terms of collaboration, communication, and working together among these various entities that are on this file, which I think is really laudable. And a lot of the listeners of this podcast will be able to learn good lessons from that experience. I mentioned at the outset that this was a two-part question. So the second part of this question 
relates to preparation and stakeholders. And so the question is, what has FISRA been doing, and in particular, what have you been doing to prepare industry and other stakeholders for this change and to minimize the potential burden and confusion surrounding this change? If you can sort of pick up on some of the items that you were already speaking about, uh, that would be very helpful to our audience. Absolutely. I, earlier I talked about industry roundtables, and that clearly is one of the key tools that we have used, is to have regular dialogues with the industry so that we can have deeper understanding about the segment of the market that are involved in syndicated mortgages. And we can really have a good understanding of what could be the potential impact. So that is something that we have done a lot throughout the process to engage the industry to help them prepare. So in terms of engagement with the industry, we have done it both formally and informally. Uh, formal engagement would include, uh, you know, well-prepared, you know, roundtables with specific topics for discussion. Uh, but we were also not afraid to reach out to industry, those who are involved in this on an informal basis, so that we can really have a good dialogue, both from the conceptual stage to all the way to the type of legislative change that we have to be thinking about um, before, we, uh, before we actually publish those four comments. And obviously, just like other regulators, any change, we do put it out for formal consultation. So I think the key thing from my perspective is really keeping an open mind when we're engaging with industry players, uh, but also have a little bit of skepticism. I think that is important from a regulator perspective. And the last thing that we have done to prepare the industry is we developed guidance so that we can articulate the objective and the nature of the change in plain English as opposed to just giving them, here's the legal changes. So we actually prepare that narrative to really help them understand what is changing and what is not changing. Thanks, Antoinette. It sounds like transparency of the process through guidance and other mechanisms, as well as healthy skepticism with respect to your stakeholders and ongoing dialogue have really been hallmarks of this process. And that is, I think, a very good lesson for all of us whenever we are embarking on change within the industry or within the regulatory frameworks that we operate within. And so moving to our next question, are there any strategies that you would say in retrospect have worked out well for you in terms of influencing behavior in your regulated sector? Yes, so influencing behavior means change. So I always like to go back to change management principles. And there are two change management principles that specifically really resonate with me. One is involving those uh, that will need to change the behavior into the change process. And the second um, principle that I always follow is draw on champions to help you uh, influence that change. A, a good example, is with the mortgage brokering industry. One of our regulatory focus uh, this year is private lending, um, especially private lending to borrowers who cannot qualify for a traditional mortgage. Many industry players have actually raised 
concerns with us in this particular segment of the market. Uh, they worry that as more borrowers are turning to private loans, uh, not all of these loans are really suitable. And they're even worried about potential predatory lending practices. So because private lending is serving an important market, from our perspective, we need to be cautious that we cannot just assume that every private loan is predatory or inappropriate. So we have actually had quite a few dialogues with the industry to really better understand and articulate what are the specific problematic behavior. And I expect this dialogue to continue as we do more work and understand this market a bit better so that together with the industry, we can, we can really identify and pinpoint the specific problems before we get to developing solutions. Now, in terms of leveraging champions um, for this particular issue, for example, when we are establishing our technical advisory committee, we know private lending is going to be an area we'd like to put a focus on. So we are very thoughtful in bringing in members who specialize in this part of the market so they, they can help us articulate any issues and find solutions. However, we also want to have members who have different business models because they may bring in a different perspective that is equally helpful. So the other thing about when it comes to influencing behavior is, a, is an IOSCO document that I regularly go back to. Um, it, is a, it is a document uh, that is called uh, Credible Deterrence in Enforcement of Securities Regulation, which I'm, I, I think many listeners may be familiar with. Now, although this document focuses very much on the securities industry, it does include recommendations that, that I think work in any regulation. And there are four things that are particularly helpful for me. One is providing legal certainty and consistency by really articulating your concerns and how they should be addressed. The second is understanding the industry and having the right information to help make informed decisions. And the third is being transparent about our expectations and the consequences of non-compliance. So these can be through issuing guidance or even letting industry knows about your supervisory plans. And of course, publishing information about enforcement actions is very, very powerful. And the last thing that um, I take from this IOSCO document is the need to create a presence so that industry knows you are supervising and you are enforcing. Unfortunately, I think with regulation, out of sight sometimes does mean out of mind. So having a presence is very important. Antoinette, I can really relate uh, to the concept of having a presence. You know, in my day job, I work at the Canadian Investor Protection Fund, and you're right, out of sight, out of mind. Often with respect to regulators and, you know, compensation funds and deposit insurance schemes, out of sight, out of mind means that until you're needed, a lot of stakeholders won't necessarily be paying attention. So I can fully relate to that concept, and I think it's really laudable and positive that FISRA and in your role there, you have been focusing on that and really trying to engage in outreach to your relevant stakeholders and include them in your change management. 
that makes a lot of sense. And I would agree with, you know, the two key concepts that you mentioned that are of particular importance and significance to you in terms of your leadership in the change management process at FISRA. And so I'm finally leading to our final question, which is about whether, Antoinette, you have any final thoughts or advice for our listeners today. Yes, I'm just going to make three points, and two of them are really just emphasis uh, for listeners. The first thing is that I think we need to tell ourselves as regulators that sometimes it is appropriate to take incremental steps to get the industry towards the desired outcome without aiming for perfection, especially when the change is large. Um, A good example where we use this approach is with uh, syndicated mortgages. We knew early on that the government have indicated that, you know, certain of this regulation needs to move over to the OSC. And we know that there are concerns with mis-selling of these products. But moving a regime takes time. So what we have done in the interim is is actually develop more requirements um, within our existing regime to address uh, the problem in the interim. So, so I do think it's important for us to think about, you, you don't need to build a Cadillac in day one. You can take incremental steps to start addressing the problems before the big change happen. And, and again, this is another change management concept that I, I like to use. And, and I think it's, it has been effective and helpful, both for us and the industry. And the last two things that I, I really want to just really re- more reinforce is that Principles-based and prescriptive-based regulations uh, should not be seen as one or the other. Um, I think uh, it is uh, helpful sometimes to use them in combination, especially when the regulated sector uh, is not homogeneous and also when the sector is uh, changing substantially. And the last thing I want to mention is that to effectively change behavior and regulate, it is really important to define the why and get agreement on the why before we jump into finding solutions. So I hope this is helpful. It's been uh, a pleasure just sharing my experience with you. Antoinette, thank you so much for your time and for your valuable insights today. Thank you, Elena, for having me. I'd also like to thank our listeners. I hope that you've found this discussion as interesting as I have. To catch Toronto Centre's webinars and podcasts, visit the TC website at torontocentre.org. You can also listen to their podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Thank you again for joining us today, and thank you, Antoinette. Thank you. Thank you.